Today's sermon text is Mark 10, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell, at, and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away and because, because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Well, surely, I don't need to say anything else. That was <laughs> that you, you did in like <laughs> three minutes what I'm hoping to do um, over the next three hours. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Raise your grace and peace to you from God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Raise your hand if you have ever been in the process of moving. Who is, especially if you moved, say, 10 years after, after college. Okay, or you know, you have a family now, and so on. And so, like, ten, like you've moved. Raise your hand if you've moved, and then also keep your hands raised if you vowed, "I'm never doing that again." Right? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why is that? Like uh, the, the 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 difficulty of moving, right? Um, there's packing. You have, you have to, and just even the struggle of finding the boxes, right? You got to find boxes for all your stuff, right? So um, packing. Um, the strength to put it onto the truck or the whatever you're using, 
and then to unpack it all, and then where does it all go? You know, just that, that stress. And why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult? Well, it might, one of the reasons it might be so difficult is, among others, is probably the amount of stuff, right? We have a lot, don't we? I mean, there's, we, you could rent storage bins for all of your stuff, right? Because you can't carry it into your own home, right? So this lots of possessions, lots of things that we have over, that we can accumulate over the years. Back in May of 2016, there's a documentary that came out titled The Minimalist. Raise your hand if you've seen The Minimalist. Anyone? Yes? A couple right there? Thanks, Randall and Morton. Uh, I'm just, I'm just going to share a brief, um, this is like a trailer for, the, for this documentary, and I think it relates well to what we're going to be talking about today. So here we go. We spend so much time on the hunt, but nothing ever quite does it for us. And we get so wrapped up in the hunt that it kind of makes us miserable. Black Friday shopping mania is still playing out tonight at malls across America. High hopes of saving some big bucks on those holiday gifts. In some cases, it did turn violent. We've, as a culture, have lost our minds. There's no question that what it means to have achieved the American dream has increased tremendously in material terms. This is not something that just happened yesterday. This is something that has been sold to us over the past hundred years by those that want to make a whole lot of money. Now that's what I call a good-looking car. You have this thing that you were obsessed about, but then the new version comes out, and now you no longer care about the one you have. In fact, the one you have is a source of dissatisfaction. People are beginning to recognize that they've maybe been tricked. There is no out until you become aware. You're not going to get happier by consuming more. Ready? I was born ready. There's nothing wrong with consumption. The problem is compulsory consumption. We're tired of it. We're tired of acquiring things because that's what we're supposed to do. When I heard about minimalism, it wasn't about just getting rid of my stuff. It was about taking control of my life and stop being told what to do and actually deciding what I wanted to do. When I first started reducing the number of things in my life, I found out that I had 51 things in the entire world. We've probably sold or donated at least 90% of our stuff. As I started to move that stuff out, I was able to finally realize what I had sacrificed. I don't know what the most common three words are in American homes. I don't know if it's, I love you, or if it's, I want that. This same thing that's not making us happy is also causing the degradation of our habitat. We're going to have to give up a lot. The secret is that a lot of that we're not actually going to miss. What I found with minimalism is it's a way of saying, let's stop the madness. When you recognize that this life is yours, and that it is your one and only, and when that seeps directly in your bones, and you recognize that this is it, everything changes. So this documentary is really about living differently. It's about cutting out, getting rid, creating space, right? It has to do with physical uh, things. It has to do with our time management. 
and also our finances as well. It's a great documentary. I'd recommend it. But I think there's a lot of things that sort of play well with our text this morning. So as our um, our passage this morning has a couple parallel texts, both in Matthew and Luke, and then Luke, it's the rich young ruler. There are so many themes in this passage as well. There's stewardship, sacrifice, eternal life, who can be saved, verses that are often used in the health and wealth kind of gospel, community, present age, and in the age to come, camels even make an appearance in our, in our, in our text this morning. So there's small ideas, there's big ideas, so where to begin? Is this story about wealth and possessions? Is this story about our absolute inability to merit salvation, our total dependence on God for his mercy alone? Is this story about a city gate in Jerusalem called the Needle Gate? No, this came much, much later. It's not about camels, but it kind of is. Anyway, so, it, or, or is this story about healing? Is this story about healing? We'll come, to, come back to that later. If we focus on the story as a sin and salvation kind of story and um, that we don't play a role in, in our salvation, we could actually miss what else Jesus is saying. Jesus in this text really does care about our wealth. Jesus in this text really um, cares about our relationship and what we do or what we don't do with the poor. So where ought we begin? Well, let's begin in verse 17, our first verse for the passage. As Jesus started on his way, this interaction takes place and Jesus is on his way. It is said by John the Baptist that John the Baptist came to what? Prepare the way of the Lord. And then in, uh, also in Acts chapter 9, the first Christians were called to be part, they were ca- called members of the way. Of the way. So maybe this isn't just a throwaway verse, but actually it brings into, into mind, into light, it brings true discipleship, the real cost of discipleship, and following Jesus. So let's keep those in mind. So this actually has significance on his way. Next, as, so is on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He fell on his knees. So we're going to take that phrase. I'm going to say something about it right now, but I'm going to put it on the shelf, and we're going to come back to it at the end. On his knees. But as of right now, this would be a sign of reverence. This would be a sign of respect of this man towards this good teacher. Also, with this question... What must I do to inherit eternal life? A lot of times when questions are brought to Jesus, it's in sort of a challenging mode, especially from the religious leaders, um, seeking to trip him up, so on and so forth. But this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In the Greek, it's, it's found to be in the imperfect tense, which, is, which would mean that it's like it's, it suggests a repeated action. What must I do? What must I do? What must I do? He is earnest. He is seeking. Are we, if we were in that, are we earnest? Are we seeking? 
it's true of this man, is it true of us? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So what, what page number is this, um, is this story uh, found in your pew Bible? Anyone have that? What page number? What is it? Okay. In this one, it's 1609. But let's be on the same page. <laughs> okay? You're welcome. So it's important to be on the same page um, in this story because when we read this text through 21st century Western eyes, we may read this question differently. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay? Zoe Ionius. Zoe Ionius. Life eternal. This is the first mention of eternal life in the gospel of Mark. Now, eternal life is spoken through uh, the whole gospel of John, but this is the first time in chapter 10 of Mark. When you hear eternal life, what might have you been taught about eternal life? Well, eternal life is about heaven. It's about the life after this one, something that is in the future, something that takes takes place after a physical death. So we read the same phrase in John, John 17, 3, in Jesus' prayer. This is eternal life. Zoe Ionius. This is eternal life, that they may know you. That's eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So just interesting to note that knowing God doesn't come before or after this eternal life, right? Instead, knowing God is eternal life. Say it with me. Knowing God is eternal life. And this man is asking, what must I do to inherit God? Because what must I do to inherit God? Yes, eternal life has to do with the age to come. It does. However, it's more than just that. It is also the here and now. It is harmony. It is peace in knowing God in this life, in the present. So this man isn't necessarily just asking about where do I go when I die, but he's asking, how do I experience God? How do I inherit God? How do I experience peace and harmony and oneness with the divine here and now? Not just in the age to come, but now, in this present reality. A second word to take a deeper look into is this kleronomeo. That's fun to say. It's inheritance. Inheritance. What must I do to inherit? If you inherit something, what typically has to happen if you inherit? Usually, there's some form of death, right? But what must I do? Well, is doing waiting? I'm just, just waiting until someone dies so I can inherit something, right? So what is, what is the doing? What is the doing here? What must I do to inherit, life, inherit eternal life? Waiting for Jesus to die on the cross? I think there is death in the picture here, but I'm not sure it's with Jesus on the cross. It's another kind of death. It's his own. It's the man. 
But Jesus isn't inviting um, the man, uh, but Jesus is inviting, he is inviting the man to die as well. Die to what? Die to his possessions. To hold them loosely, to let them go, to be willing to be a, um, to be willing to part with these, these idols potentially for him. Uh, potentially to experience the same themes from the movie, the, the documentary, The Minimalist, to let go, to let go, having to do with our physical space, the space that we create in our schedules, and the, and the space we create financially. Um, and as a, from a Christian perspective, creating space for the divine, creating space, openness in our lives, to die to your possessions, to inherit God, inherit God, and to live a, the full life that God is, is calling us to. For this man in the story, it was the thing, the possessions, that was in the way. Um, I'm not sure if anyone's seen the movie Fight Club, <laughs> asked the preacher in a Mennonite church. Um, the thing, <laughs> here, it's Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, um, came back in the... Uh, 2004, maybe 2005, Fight Club. The things, here's a quote, um, the things you own can end up owning you. It is only after you lose everything that you are free to do anything. To do anything. It is true, there's nothing that we can do to inherit um, uh, our place, to secure our place in heaven. For humans, it is impossible but for God, all things are possible. But there is something that we can do to inherit God now. In the here and now. It's an invitation to die. You will inherit eternal life in the presence. This peace, this harmony, and oneness with the divine. Take up your cross to follow me and to die daily. So this man asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus takes a a left-hand turn here, right? Before answering this earnest question from this man, he says, hold on, wait, wait, wait. Good? Good teacher? Why did you address me as good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Are you here admitting that I am divine? Are you acknowledging that I am the exact representation of him from last week's sermon up at Menohaven? The exact representation of his father? Don't know for sure, but Jesus continues. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. Jesus recites, he gives certain commandments, sometimes referred to as second table commandments. Second table meaning the commandments that deal with our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another. Okay? No mention of first table or vertical commandments. So he has this list, and then, and then the guy comes back and he says, teacher, he dropped the good. He's sharp, this one, right? He doesn't say, good teacher, and then the next, good teacher. No, he drops the good. But did this man actually have it right the first time? 
So teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Is this man telling the truth? (laughs) Did he actually keep these commandments? Worthy of note that Jesus does not challenge him on that. Jesus doesn't challenge him on that. Maybe he did keep the commandments. We don't know for sure. But verse 21, and that's my favorite verse of this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I think the story just takes this pause right here. He looked at him and he loved him. Maybe we ought to pause and consider. When we look at those who have, they have riches, those who possess much, those who are pious and righteous, I have kept all of these. When we look at those people, those people, the rich, the pious, what is our reaction to them? Jesus looked at him and loved him. Do we look at him as followers of Christ and also, along with Jesus, love him? Or does another word that starts with J and ends with judgment come to mind? If we, as readers of this text, as well as the disciples, followers of Jesus, not just worshipers of Jesus, but followers of Jesus, do we look at him or people like him in our lives and love them? The haves. And then, if we insert ourselves as the one who has possessions, how do we react to, when Jesus looks at me, what's his reaction? Do we sense the same thing? When Jesus looks at me, What's my reaction? Let's just say, what's my reaction? Sorry about that. Or what's his reaction? I'm sorry. When he looks at me. I had it right. (laughs) Sorry about that. So moving on, it says, next is this. It says, one thing you lack. He looked at him. He loved him. But there's an invitation for more, right? One thing you lack. Now, if Jesus were talking to me, I would say, one thing... (laughs) Just one thing I lack? The list is long. He says this. He says, go sell. Go and sell. Everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So next here we have an invitation from Jesus to go and do something. Get on Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, have a garage sale. There's an invitation to do something. Minimalism, right? To get rid of, create space. 
And finally, an invitation to follow him. So it says this, At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great possessions, great wealth. So this word possessions, katema, katema, almost like container, holding your possessions, katema. So our idea of possessions is a little different than maybe what was back then. But we have a temptation. Our temptation is to make this passage about demonizing the truly wealthy. And this would not be helpful if we don't also consider how our possessions affect our ability to experience eternal life. How our possessions affects our ability in experiencing God here and now. Another word uh, that's not used so much in Greek is this word sad. He went away sad. Stignazo. The word sad is not common, but it carries with this idea of gloominess or being clouded over. Kind of like maybe outside today. It's so stignazo outside, right? Stignazo. Clouded over. Here we can maybe see that this man's love of his possessions clouds his vision of eternal life. Clouding his vision and not able to connect or to see God. So then we have this man's reaction is that, you know, he's sad and he what? He went away opposite the direction that Jesus was going. So if we, if Jesus were here today, and I believe he is, and he asked you, go sell everything, what would your reaction be? To begin to wrap up this morning, I mentioned earlier we're going to take something and put it on the shelf. Anybody remember what that is? The guy fell on his knees. He fell on his knees. Does this mean anything? What's the significance of this man falling on his knees? Because I said, this, there's parallel text. This, this story is in Matthew, and it's also in Luke. And in both of those accounts, there's no mention of falling on his knees. Why does Mark include this little detail? Well, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, we'll start with Mark 1.40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Next. Mark 5.6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, this man who was demon-possessed, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Mark 7, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came, doesn't say knees technically, but fell at his feet. And in our text today, as Jesus started on his way, a man fell, or ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. What we see here in the Gospel of Mark 
right? So what we see, when people come before Jesus and fall on their knees, they are in need of something. The first three, they are in need of healing. They are in need of healing. Leprosy, demon-possessed, the daughter has an impure spirit, and now we have this man also falling on his knees. Now imagine with me for a moment that this man too is in need of healing. What if this guy isn't just rich? What if this guy isn't just in love with his possessions? What if this guy isn't just pious by keeping the laws? But this man is actually sick and he's in need of healing. Sure, he has his appearance on the outside, faithful, pious life, possessions, all covering up what's deep inside, covering up something that's off, perhaps covering up something that's been wounded. Maybe Jesus recognizes this deeper reality of this man. All this guy has, the knowledge of the law, his piety, his abundant possessions, it all has distorted his sense of himself. It has all distorted his sense of God, and it has distorted his sense of others, of his neighbor. Perhaps the man, perhaps I, can fall into the lie that I am what I have, I am what I do, and I am what others think of me. This man has possessions. I am what I have. This man follows the law. I am what I do. Jesus is inviting him to let go of it all. Is the invitation uh, from Jesus for this man to finally, for the first time, let go so that he can let God heal a wound that's inside? The wound causing him to cover up his true self. his possessions, his piety. We all carry wounds, don't we? Who's got wounds, anyone? We cover up and we medicate those wounds by consuming stuff, by consuming material things, by consuming social media, by consuming substances. It helps us to cover up and not deal with the wounds. Is this invitation from Jesus an invitation for him to discover his true self? In each of the healings from the Mark, all those Mark texts, those stories, the one healed or the mother of the daughter, they're all invited right after the healing happens. They're all invited to go and to do something to participate in some way in their own healing. 
They're invited to go and do something, to participate in their own healing. Here, the, the man is inv- invited to go and to sell. Jesus asks him to go and to do something. Something to give up, somewhere to go. It's not about salvation. But it's about eternal life now. God's invitation to this man is our it's our invitation. One that can actually free us up to go and do something. To love one another in ways we thought not possible. There's freedom. Freedom to uncover and to let our true self to reflect the goodness of the one who created you. For this man, Jesus names the idol. His idol was his possessions. His possessions clouded over his ability to connect, to experience eternal life. So we'll just end with two questions. What is Jesus asking you to give up? I think with these, uh, these stories, these passages, it, it's true on an individual level. But then also I think it's true corporately as well. So the next question is, what is Jesus asking us to give up as a church? Both of these questions require time and space and community to discern together where God may be leading us, both individually and as a community of faith.